Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger of Story Point Church, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. And now, here's Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger with this week's message from Story Point Church. So we're talking about holiness. We've been talking about holiness for a number of weeks now, and we're going to continue with this aspect of holiness in Revelation chapter 5 today. You know that very last song that we sang, Kevin was talking a little bit more about that at the end, that I surrender all. And the very idea of surrendering all is a holiness issue. If you want to sum up that entire song, it's about holiness. If I surrender all, it's because I'm walking in holiness and pursuing holiness and chasing after the God of holiness. And if I don't surrender all, then it's a holiness issue that I need to deal with. So for weeks now, our foundational verse has been Leviticus 19.2, where God gives us command to be holy as He is holy. And that applies to all aspects of our life, not just what we do on Sunday morning, not just what we do in a Bible study, not just what we do when we gather together with other people who proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Holiness is an issue in all aspects of our life. Now, I've spent some time, as we prayed over Terrell, one of the things that I've spent time with him over the last year is this pursuit of holiness and asking right questions. And I can tell you, based on conversations with him specifically, that their move is partially based on asking right questions, such as, God, what do you want us to do with this next phase of our life? So it's a holiness issue whether or not we even ask God questions. The holiness issue of God deals in all aspects of our lives. Our church our finances, our time management. Everything in life is a holiness issue. Or it's a surrender to the holiness of God. If I'm walking in holiness and purity, then I am in sync with the holiness of God. If I'm living in despair, if I'm not making wise choices, if I'm not listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit of God, speaking in my heart, life, and directing me, then that is a holiness issue that needs to be resolved. We can also say that's a sin issue. Now, we don't want to really talk a whole lot about sin because that's, that's that bad thing. Holiness and sin are counter opposites, though. When I'm walking in holiness, I'm walking a pure lifestyle. When I'm not walking in holiness, then it's an issue. It's a sin issue where I'm not pursuing the ways of God, the things of God. And as I've mentioned to you in the past, we have created this mentality that church stuff is sacred and of God. And things in the rest of the world is not sacred, it's secular, and that's not of God. And that's a lie that I think actually came from the evil one himself. To confuse us into thinking that some stuff is holy, some stuff is worldly. The worldly stuff is just what it is, and we're to focus on the holiness. But the holiness applies to all aspects of life. Everything falls under that. Our interpretation of sacred and our mindset around holiness. And what's secular? There's no difference. And so for the last few weeks, we've been digging into this holiness foundation because this is foundational. 
This is foundational for the way that we live our lives. This is foundational for the way we live in our church. This is foundational based on the direction that we go as a body of Christ. This is foundational of every single decision that I make every single moment of every single day. Because it's when it's in tune with God that there's this in tune with holiness. When it's not in tune with God, it's not in tune with holiness. Therefore, it's an issue. And so we looked at Leviticus 19.2 as the foundational verse for this time that we're investing and thinking and processing about holiness. Be holy as a command, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. A command from God Himself. So we spent some weeks looking in and digging into that, and now we've taken a little bit of time to look at the vision in the body, out of the body, we do not know, that Isaiah experienced roughly 3,000 years ago, and that John experienced roughly 2,000 years ago. And 3,000 years ago, Isaiah the prophet had this vision in the body, out of the body, we don't know, but he ascended to the throne room. The foundation of heaven itself shook because of the truth being spoken, being chanted, being sung by these indescribable six-winged creatures called seraphims that we've tried to imagine that artists have created renditions of for nearly 3,000 years now. We still don't know exactly, but one day, one day when we get to the throne room, each of us will with our own eyes see these indescribable creatures that are gathered around the throne nonstop, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, as we understand time, proclaiming the glory of God. And in Isaiah's dream, vision, he saw these seraphim crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. All of creation declares His glory. And then Isaiah Setting that foundation a thousand years later, John having a similar type of experience. It's a revelation of Jesus given to John that we apply to our lives today in 2019. And we apply this as a lifestyle. And John went to that same throne room. His vision was a little bit different. His idea was a little bit different. In his finite mind trying to describe an infinite, un. un describable situation did his best to write down the miraculous that he visioned. And he visioned these seraphim gathered around the throne crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And between those two revelations we see this revelation that God exists and all of creation acknowledges it. And then John's, uh, John's vision that all of creation um, it cries out, holy, 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 and it intercedes time, was, is, and is to come. Time has no limit toward the holiness of God. Truth has no limit toward the holiness of God. It's all tied around that holiness aspect. And so last week in chapter 4, Revelation, we saw where the holiness of God was proclaimed even more. And these 24 elders are gathered around this throne. And they're worshiping the King of kings and the Lord of lords on His throne high and lifted up. That very same throne that shoots out lightning and blinds us. The peals of thunder cry from the throne itself in deafening loudness. And the rumbling coming from the thrones very shook him to the core of who he was. We see that happening 
And these 24 elders gathered around the throne with the seraphim, and they're crying out to the glory of God the Father. So today, that's where we pick up in Revelation chapter 5. And I want us to spend some time in Revelation chapter 5 looking at the holiness of God, looking at the holiness of Jesus through these lenses that we've been given. So if you would, look at Revelation chapter 5. James, can I get the clock thrown up there for me, please, sir? So Revelation chapter 5 Verse 1, John speaking, he says, I saw the right hand of the one seated on the th- upon the throne, a scroll written in the front and back, sealed with seven seals. So in this moment, imagine that you're back in that throne room with John. You're looking at this through the lens of John, through the description of John. And John sees the Father sitting on the throne, high and lifted up. He says the one, capital O-N-E, sitting on the throne. He's talking about God the Father. God the Father through this entire time is sitting on the throne, being worshipped, being exalted, being proclaimed truth over. And He's sitting there in that power, in that seat of authority. And He's continuing to sit there. And John sees in the hand, in the right hand of God the Father Almighty sitting on the throne is a scroll in His right hand. And on the scroll is seven seals. And it's written on the front and on the back. How he knew that without seeing it, I don't know. But he saw this scroll and he knew that there was words on the front and words on the back side with these seven seals on it. Now we're not going to spend a lot of time, hardly any time, matter of fact, no time today, talking about that with the exception of what's written right here, because that's what the next several chapters of Revelation deals with. And we're not jumping into that, because what we're focusing on is what's being happening, what's what's being proclaimed, what's being spoken around the throne right now, and how that applies to our life, and how we walk out holiness based on that. In verse 2, I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seal? Now, we don't know who this mighty angel was. Was it a mighty angel could be one of the seraphim? Probably not because he didn't call it one of the creatures. It could be one of the archangels. But we know that in the vision of John, at what he saw, what he experienced in that moment, it wasn't just an angel. It was a mighty angel. Mighty could mean larger than the rest of them. Bigger wings, bigger sword, bigger posture. Who knows? But it was breathtaking to uphold. And his only words to describe it was this mighty angel. And he saw this mighty angel had a mighty voice. And out of that mighty voice of that mighty angel came the words, came the question that went straight to the soul of who John was and says, who in all of heaven is worthy to open this scroll, to take this scroll out of God the Father's hands, to take this scroll, to crack open these seven seals and open it? Who has the authority? Who has the power? Who has the calling? Who in all creation can do that? That's the question. And I wonder if it was kind of like uh, what we experienced with Isaiah several weeks ago when God the Father came to Isaiah after he had removed his sins from him, after he had, had purified him, and then he asked the question, Who shall I send? And Isaiah, just like that little kid, stands up and raises his hand and says, Send me, send me. God knew the answer ahead of time, and he was, in a gentle way, 
having, helping Isaiah have this aha moment. I wonder if it's the same thing that happened right here. That God already knew this. God the Father already knew this. The angel even knew this. So the angel trying to make a point toward John, because this is a revelation of Jesus given to John to give to us, He's like, I want to give you the answer to the question I'm about to ask you. Who is worthy in all of creation? Who is worthy in heaven or on earth? Who is worthy to take this scroll from our Father in heaven, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and open it up? And he waited, and there was silence. The chanting had stopped. The songs had stopped. The music had stopped. And there was silence. And you can imagine what's going on in John's heart and his mind and his eyes as he's looking. Who? Who? Who can take that? In verse 3, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Can you imagine in that moment the desire of wanting to know what was written on the scroll that God the Father held in His right hand? And he wasn't trying to hide it. I almost imagine that he had it outstretched saying, who wants it? Who can open it? You just have to be worthy enough. Who can open it? Who can crack these seals? You just have to be pure enough. You have to be holy enough. You have to be like me because this is my scroll. I'm the one that sealed it. So you have to be purified like me. And of course, no one in heaven is equal to that that task except for one. In verse 5, then one of the elders tells me, Stop weeping, stop crying. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. Now, I think we all know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask the question anyway and see what your response is. Who is the lion of Judah, the root of David? Jesus. Very good. It's Jesus. He is the lion. One of the scriptures in one of the descriptions in the scripture that testifies to who he is, the lion. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's from the root of Jesse, the root of David. It means he came from that lineage, that he's from that family tree, from that family line. They acknowledge who he is and where he came from. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, I saw a lamb standing. So again, put on your imagination cap. You're in the throne room, and this is what we're experiencing In the midst of the throne room, in the midst of that very space, however big that throne room is, in the midst of it is God the Father sitting on the throne and surrounding Him are these four seraphim, these four large angels. And in addition to that are these 24 elders. 
And in the midst of that, John says, I saw a lamb, a capital L, which talks about Jesus. So he had just, in the previous verse, in the previous sentence, John had heard the voice speak and say, the lion from the tribe of Judah. The lion is worthy. And now he saw the lamb. Two of the words used to describe Jesus, the lion and the lamb, prophesied that they will, they will be together. The lion and the lamb. And we saw the lamb. Now, I don't believe that he saw a literal lamb sowing there. He used his words to describe the vision of Jesus that he saw. The lamb who had been sacrificed. The lamb who willingly laid down his life. I saw the resurrected Jesus standing before the throne is what John is proclaiming there. The weight of that moment, the enormity of that moment, the sensation of that moment. Oh my goodness, if you can get goose pimples in heaven, don't you know that John had goose pimples at that time? Running up and down his spine, he saw the Lamb right there, walking into that holy moment, walking into that authority, walking into that moment of time and experiencing that. Verse six and, six, and in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders, I saw a lamb standing, standing as having been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of the God sent out into all the earth. What does that represent? What does that mean? Throughout Judaism, throughout the history of Scripture, we do know that the horns represent power. A horn represents authority. A horn represents strength. The king is given the horn to proclaim. The horn represents strength and power. And we don't know exactly what these seven horns represent, but we do know that the number seven is also very significant in Judaism. Seven represents the term completion. That's why after, Jesus, after God had created the earth in six days, He rested on the seventh. It was complete. No more work needed to be done. It was a time of rest. Seven represents completion. So just based on those two little, bit, little bits of information, we know that all power, all authority, all dominion has been given to Jesus in this moment, and He covers it. He wears it. Is he wearing seven horns on you know two on one side and three on another and front and back? I mean, what's that actually look like? Are they all the same size? Are they all a little bit different? Is one bigger than another? Well, what was the sound that comes from them? We don't know exactly. The horns also use as a sign of anointing. They would take the take the horn of the animal and they would they would anoint people with oil. So many different uses. But we see that right now that He has been given, acknowledged being given, all power, all authority, all dominion, and it's complete. It's all complete. But in addition to that, He has these seven eyes, which represent the seven eyes of the Holy Spirit of God that go around the entire world. Where does that come from? We actually read that a few weeks ago in Isaiah chapter 11, where we look at the sevenfold Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit. 
Seven of these attributes of who the Holy Spirit of God is. We see those in Isaiah being prophesied about being given to the coming Messiah whenever the Messiah was to come. And here we see the completion and the acknowledgement that when He came on earth, He was given the sevenfold Spirit, and He still maintains the sevenfold Spirit as He's in the throne room in heaven right here, right now. He continues to have that sevenfold Spirit, that same Holy Spirit sevenfold that's in each and every one of us as Christ's followers. If you had ever said yes to Jesus at any point in your life, you've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit of God to come dwell within you. So many scriptures talk about what the Holy Spirit is and the attributes of Him. We see that all throughout Scripture. You see Paul writing to his protege, Timothy. And he said, the Spirit of God that dwells within you, the Holy Spirit of God that dwells within you, is not a spirit of fear or timidity. It's a spirit of power, resurrection power, of love, of self-control, self-discipline. In another place, Paul writes and says that the Spirit of God is a spirit of love and joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control, humility, all of these incredible attributes of God through the Holy Spirit is part of that sevenfold Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that dwells within us, but He's being recognized through these seven eyes of the Holy Spirit. Complete in power and authority, complete in holiness and purity as he stands before the throne. In verse 7, he came and took the scroll from the right hand of the one seated on the throne. Can you imagine that moment when John's envisioning, in his vision, in the body, out of the body, we do not know, but he's at the throne room. He's in the throne room. He's observing the seraphim and, and elders worshiping around the throne. And then he sees Jesus. And I imagine maybe Jesus is standing right in front of God the Father, right in front of the throne at that moment. And he sees Jesus reach up with his right hand. And he sees the Father reach out with his right hand with that scroll. And they exchange. And now Jesus takes the scroll from the hand of God the Father. Surely there was not silence at that point. Surely there was an exclamation of praise. Surely there was this celebration that the Lamb who was slain now has the authority and has taken this scroll from the hand of God the Father Almighty. And verse 8, When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the people. So in that moment, he sees that now Jesus is being worshipped. We saw in Isaiah, God the Father being worshipped around the throne by the seraphim. In Revelation 4, we saw God the Father being worshipped by the seraphim. And then God the Father being worshipped by the 24 elders. And now in this moment, the shift has changed and it's now Jesus, I imagine now He's turned around and He's standing in front of the congregation, standing in front of the elders and the seraphim and all those who are present with God the Father sitting in authority behind Him. And the worship has now been changed to where Jesus is the focal point. And we see these elders and these seraphim that are kneeling down. And in their hands... In one hand is a harp, 
Now, what's a harp for? It's for songs. It's for worship through music. It's, through, it's to praise and to glorify Jesus. If there are harps, there had to be music. Now, we make a mistake sometime in our church culture, and it's not on purpose, but it's just the way that we use our English language. And sometimes we say that when we use the word worship, we're talking about the music during a service. And that's not correct. That's not accurate. You see, music is a way to worship God. It's not the way. It is a way. Because our lifestyle is called to be a lifestyle of worship. It's called to be a lifestyle of holiness. So when I make godly choices in my life and godly decisions and do godly things in the name of Jesus Christ, when I do those things, that is a form of worship that I'm offering to the throne. In one hand, they had a harp. But I want you to see what they had in the other hand. Golden bowls full of incense. And the incense were the prayers of the people. Now, no one knows exactly what that looks like, but when we look at Jewish tradition, one of the things that we know is that the Jewish tradition believed that, or believes that when they offer a prayer to the throne room of God, that it, is, it turns into a sweet fragrance of myrrh and frankincense. You remember both, two of those, both of those things were given to Jesus by the wise men when they came and visited Jesus. Frankincense and myrrh. And so in the throne room of God, the Israelites believe that when their prayers are offered, that is a sweet fragrance around the throne room. So we saw the lightning, we heard the thunder, we felt the majesty being displayed from the throne itself. Now there's actually a scent that's in the heavenlies as well. So all of our senses are starting to come together as we experience the holiness of God in that moment. And so you have these prayers that the prayers of the people. What people? Are it just those 24 elders? No. Could it be the prayers of every single one of us as Christ's followers throughout the history of the world? Quite possibly. We don't know exactly what these prayers are. But I tend to believe in my heart that these are the prayers that we offer in humility and humbleness and sacrifice and lay them at the foot of the cross, lay them at the, at the foot of the throne. That these prayers for more, these prayers for healings, these prayers for the miraculous signs and wonder, these prayers for more of God in my heart and my life, these prayers of salvation, all of these beautiful prayers that impact the world are offering a sweet, sweet fragrance in the throne room itself. And it's not just our prayers, it's the prayers of all the saints that have gone before us. And I do believe that it's the prayers of every single Christ follower yet to come. Um, that even 2,000 years ago, and this is just me, I can't back this up necessarily biblically, but I believe, based on that, that the prayers, incense that he was smelling 2,000 years ago are the very prayers that we're praying in this very moment. How incredible that would be. 
that our prayers are syncing up with the prayers of the saints that have gone before us. How beautiful is that? And what does that look like? In verse 9, and they were singing a new song. And this is a song directed toward Jesus. Remember, I've mentioned a <laughs> Let's start over again. I mentioned a moment ago that the prayers in Isaiah and so far that have been chanted and proclaimed in Revelation have been toward God the Father on the throne. This one is toward Jesus, who, who I imagine standing before the throne. And he says, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you redeemed for God the those from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. Let's stop there for just a moment because remember last week we said we didn't know exactly who those 24 elders were, but there's no denying based on the very thing that they are proclaiming in heaven in this moment that they know and knew the resurrected Jesus Christ. They are proclaiming truth of what had already happened. That Jesus came to earth. That Jesus walked a sinless life. That Jesus died a painful, murderous death. That Jesus stayed in the ground for a few days and then came back to life. And we were told through Scripture, through the resurrected power of the Holy Spirit of God. And that He walked the earth for another 40 days. And then He ascended into heaven where in this moment He is still with God the Father Almighty. And I, John has now visualized that and has seen that. And now he's heard with his own ears this truth being proclaimed in heaven about what Jesus has already accomplished for you and for me. He's worthy because he was slain. He's worthy because of his blood. He's worthy because he redeemed to God those in every tribe and every tongue, every people group, every nation around the world. And you have made them for our God, a kingdom and a priesthood, and they shall reign upon the earth. Guys, truth that is being spoken now in heaven is about you and me. It's being spoken and chanted and proclaimed over the truth of who Jesus is, but it's for you and me today. Because what was chanted 2,000 years ago, what is still being chanted today in this moment, is truth about you and me. This is truth about us. Because of Jesus' blood, because Jesus was slain, He's redeemed us from our tribe and our tongue, our people group, our nation. And... Because of that, He is made for God, the Father, a kingdom and a priesthood that shall reign upon the earth. That's us. You are a royal priesthood. You are a royal, part of the royal kingdom. You are the princes and the princesses of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's every single one of us as Christ followers. And Jesus' work was redemption for the entire world. That's what it says right here. It's for the entire world. What about those who haven't said yes to Jesus? The redemption was for them. They've just not accepted the free gift of salvation. That's why it's so important for us to tell them. 
right? It's so important for us to live out a lifestyle of holiness, to live a questionable lifestyle. We are called as Christ followers to live questionable lifestyles. But not in a negative connotation, in a positive, God-glorifying, God-honoring, holy connotation. Our life should look so radically different from the rest of the world that people question why we live the way that we live. That's our calling. That's what he's talking about right here. Why? Because he died for all of humanity. Every people group, every tongue, every nation, every single one. The neighbors we don't like. The bullies at school. The person that tries to destroy my business. The competition. Those bad people on the other side of the world that don't like us. You see, this, this truth is not just for us. It's for the world. But here's the, here's the caveat in that. Here's our struggle in the Western world is that we live a casual, comfortable Christianity. Do we not? Do we not live a casual, comfortable Christianity? Christ is good on the good days when things aren't going so well. Eh, I don't know. Maybe I'm not really called to be a Christ follower today. It's the way we live our life. I live a passionate, Christ-honoring life when this is going on, but when this is going on, I don't know. You know, I can live a Christ-following life because I come to church on Sundays, but Monday afternoon, that's a different topic. Guys, our, we, we have to wake up. As a people, as Christ followers around the world, I'm not talking about just us at this church, so I'm not finger pointing at all. But the Western mentality of this casual, comfortable Christianity, which Paul himself warned against, has become so demonically influenced in our culture, in our world, that we've become accustomed to it. And we have to wake up. Because nowhere in Scripture are we called to comfortable Christianity. We're not. Now, that doesn't mean go out and make dumb choices, make bad choices. We're not talking about that. But there's something more than this westernized lifestyle of Christ following. If I do these six things, then I'm a good Christian. As long as I stay away from these, then, then, I'm, then I'm okay. Oh... John was passionate about following Christ. Paul was passionate about following Christ. All throughout the New Testament, we see James and Dr. Luke. All of these people were so passionate about following Christ. And thankfully, there's been people in every generation since then that have been passionate about following Christ. Because if they weren't, if this apathetic attitude of Christ's following, this apathetic attitude of holiness infiltrated the entire world over Christianity would have died out 
many years ago. But God in His infinite goodness and His infinite grace and His infinite gift of the Holy Spirit of God, there's always been a remnant. But you know something? Let me just be honest here. I don't want to be part of a remnant. I want to be part of a mighty army. Now, I will be part of a remnant if nobody else steps up with me. They don't want to link arms with me, go in and fight with me, do what's necessary with me, then I will stand alone. But I don't want to be part of the remnant. I want to see the army of the living God in flesh and blood standing firm for the truth in our culture and in our world in this very moment, in this very year. Why? Because Jesus paid such a price to offer us to God the Father Almighty. In verse 11, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. Their number was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Depending on the, def- the uh, translation that you're reading, you may see thousands of thousands upon hundred thousands of hundred thousands. I actually read one translation that was millions upon millions and thousands upon thousands. In other words, the number that of, of, of creatures, people, Entities in heaven gathered around the throne, worshiping in that moment was such a large number that John could not comprehend it or even write the number down. It was that large. Now, John had seen some large numbers. You remember Jesus several times had had fed 5,000 men plus their wives plus their families. 4,000 men plus their wives plus their families. So he's seen multitudes of 12, 14, 15,000 people gathered together. And he can even write down that type of number. He can comprehend that type of number. In that moment around the throne of heaven, it's like all of creation joined in at that moment. And he got to see that with his eyes. And it so blew him away, it should so blow us away. The number so massive that our mind cannot comprehend how many people were there. Absolutely spectacular. And this was what was going on in verse 12. They were chanting with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Thousands upon thousands upon millions upon millions upon undescribable amount of people gather around these numbers, worshiping the throne room, worshiping Jesus in that moment, and giving Him all praise, all glory, all authority was given to Him. And worshiped in that moment. And that is the lifestyle that we are called to demonstrate in our lives. Verse 13, And I heard every creature, every creature, every Creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and everything in them. In other words, everything. Now, I don't know if he heard the rocks crying out in this moment, but we know for sure that everything that had breath to breathe as we understand it was crying out in this moment and they're responding now to the truth to, to, to both of them Jesus and the Father on the throne. Because here's the next words that are listed right here. To the one seated on the throne, God the Father, and to the Lamb, Jesus Christ, be blessing and honor and glory and power forever and ever. 
Be blessing and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Be blessing and honor and glory and power forever and ever. To the King of kings and the Lord of lords, be blessing and honor and glory and power forever and ever. For the, to the Lamb who was slain, my big brother Jesus Christ, who died for me, be blessing and honor and power and glory forever and ever. To the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to Jesus Christ, the one and only, be blessing and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And this crescendo this building and it's getting louder and louder. Can you imagine how deafening it must have been in heaven in that moment for John his ears about to explode when millions upon millions upon millions upon millions all of creation at one time chanting with a loud voice to God the Father and God the Son be blessing and honor and glory and power forever and ever. It had to shake. It had to move. It had to humble him. That that's what's happening in heaven. And then he concludes this chapter, and the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Amen. Amen, because we can't say anything else except, Amen, bring it. Amen, give me some more. Amen, sing it louder. Amen, scream it louder. Amen, say it again. Amen, 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 amen. And there was such an excitement in heaven in that moment. And then we come back to earth and it's casual, comfortable Christianity. Oh, man. Holiness. Now, we can't, because of life, eating and drinking, breathing and working, we can't, in our imagination or even in our voices, say these words, 24-7. It's impossible. So why do we talk about this as the holiness aspect of God? Because it's a lifestyle issue. It really is. Everything is a holiness issue. My time, my work, my giving, my finances, my shopping, my education, my choices, my dress, the places that I go, it's all a holiness issue. Have you grasped the foundational truth that God is holy? Period. That Jesus is holy. Period. And that the Holy Spirit is holy. Period. That is the foundation to build upon. Remember I've told you, the most important part of this building is our foundation. Because if the foundation gives way, the chairs give way. And you have nothing. If the foundation gives away, the walls fall down, the roof caves in. The foundation is God is holy. And we need to remember not just to get it here. Because finite minds trying to understand an infinite God's impossible to begin with, so you're never going to completely get it here. But we can get it here because we have the gift of the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within us. And if we get it here... We walk by faith, and if we get it here, we walk by humility. If we get it here, we walk in holiness and faithfulness and purity and integrity and with clean hands and a pure heart and a resolute spirit because we get it here. And remember, the Bible's not written from this logic-based perspective to begin with. It's written from this experiential-based perspective. So it's designed for us to get it here. Whether or not I get it here, if I get it here, wow. That's the calling. 
And that's the more. We're going to stop right here. Next week we're going to jump in, start looking at some application aspects of this. How do I actually live this out in my day-to-day life? And the reason it's taken so long on the foundation is because the foundation is so critical. We're not moving away from the foundation. Everything's going to be built in conjunction with and based upon the foundation. So even as we look at walking in holiness and purity from the book of Hebrews, it's going to be based on this foundational truth that God is holy. And that dictates every aspect of my life. Everything. Every choice I make. So I want to pray for us, and then we'll, we'll sing a song. And if you want some prayer, you can come up for prayer, or you can spend some time with God right there in your seat. But the prayer that I want to pray is that God reveals His holiness to your heart and to my heart, to your mind and my mind. That He will show us where we're not walking in holiness. But here's the issue with that. If we pray and ask God to reveal to us where we're not walking in holiness and purity and integrity and faithfulness to Him, then we have a choice to make. Because if He reveals it to us, we can either say, yes, I'm going to change. I'm not going to live that type of lifestyle anymore. Or I can choose to say, no, I'm not going to make any changes there. Sometimes it's pretty obvious. It's black and white. Just, it's either a yes or a no. Sometimes and where it gets kind of difficult in our life is that gray area. So if it's a gray area that you really can't see clearly, don't stress over it. Don't worry about it. Ask God for more revelation. And if He gives you more revelation this afternoon, then act upon it. If it's tomorrow that He gives it to you, then act upon it. If it's next week when He gives it to you, then act upon it. Don't ignore it, but don't stress about it. Because if your heart is in tune with God, I want to be purified. I want to walk in holiness. It's like this artichoke or this onion, layer after layer after layer. And when He gives you a layer to remove, remove it. nothing to remove in the moment. Focus on worshiping and glorifying Him and joining with the angels and celebrating. Because He is a good, good Father. And He doesn't want you to go out and do a ton of things for Him. What He wants you to be is His little boy or His little girl. Be His little boy. Be His little girl. Desiring to imitate our Daddy who's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Who desires for us to be holy as He is holy and has given us the ability to do that through the gift that He gave us.